Welcome to Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are Michael Langemeyer, who's a professor of ag economics here at Purdue, along with Nathan Thompson, who's an associate professor of ag economics at Purdue. Uh, before we start today's podcast, I want to remind listeners that the annual Purdue Farm Management Tour takes place next week on July 19 and 20 in central Indiana. The tour will highlight three top-notch Indiana farms and also includes the Indiana Master Farmers Award Ceremony and Reception. Uh, the tour is free thanks to our sponsors, Indiana Farm Bureau Insurance and Farm Credit Mid-America. Uh, if you want some more details, they're available on the center's website. So on the podcast today, we're going to review the latest information from the USDA's World Ag Supply and Demand Report that was released on July 12th, along with updates on expected crop profitability and crop basis. And so a reminder for our listeners, you can download a set of charts that accompany this podcast at the center's website, which is purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So if you look at the information on the report, and some of this really goes back to the acreage report that came out on June 30th, um, they did reduce the, uh, uh, or actually increase the corn acreage up about 0.4 million acres uh, compared to the March planting intention. So corn acreage at 89.9 million acres, uh, that was no big surprise. That really related back to the June 30th uh, acreage report that came out. And the corn yield, they have still holding that constant. We won't really get a change on USDA's estimate of what corn yield might be until the August crop report. That's the first time they actually have some objective yield estimate information to plug in. So this is still based, loosely speaking, on trend yields, although USDA did back away from the trend yield on uh, a couple of months ago. And they're sticking with that so far. So the yield is still at 177 uh, bushels per acre. And I think it's interesting to look at that, especially in recent years, and maybe think about that uh, yield number versus crop conditions. So the 177 is the same as last year's yield. It's higher than the yield we had in 20 or in 20 or in 19, and really just about equal to what we had in 17 and 18. And I think if you look at the trend yield estimates and look at the variability around that, you can see, particularly at this time of year, it's really just going to depend on what happens to weather conditions over the next, uh, especially the rest of July and maybe spilling over a little bit into, into August. If you look at the uh, corn condition index uh, ratings from USDA that come out every Monday afternoon, and you look at the 2022 estimates and compare them to recent history, basically this crop is tracking what took place in the 2021 crop year. Uh, conditions a little weaker than they were in 2020, uh, a little weaker than they were in 2018, uh, better than they were in 2019. Now, that's no surprise because 2019 was such a tough, tough year in terms of getting the crop in the ground uh, and under very difficult conditions. But um, I, I, to me, you know, as I look at it here, early July, it's really going to depend very heavily on what takes place with respect to weather, especially these last few weeks of July. We've got a big chunk of the corn crop that has not started to tassel yet. And of course, that's going to be critical in terms of, of conditions going forward. And so speaking of that, if you look at uh, the drought monitor, um, and as we put this uh, this program together, the two most recent drought monitors we had were dated June 28th and then July 5th. And as you look at those two monitors, you can see that drought conditions were worsening as we head from uh, late June into the early July timeframe. So we're entering the month of July with some pretty dry conditions in a big chunk of the Corn Belt. Uh, and that includes a chunk here of, of Indiana, uh, it includes a significant portion of, of west central Illinois, uh, portions of Iowa, 
especially northwest Iowa. So, you know, this corn crop is not out of the woods yet. I guess that would be my, my take. What's your take, Michael? That's definitely the case, and it's particularly dry. This has been like that for a while now. It's particularly dry in western western Nebraska, Colorado, western Kansas, uh, Texas. Uh, and, and, and we have to remember there's a lot of irrigation down there, but you know, certainly uh, dry, you know, dry conditions like this is going to impact those irrigated yields too. Yeah, and I guess the related point, we're really not going to dwell on this too much, but if you look at the sorghum condition uh, ratings, um, reflective, I think, of what you just mentioned, of course, so much of the sorghum is in the Great Plains, those condition ratings are very weak, uh, reflecting the, the dryness. So that's a contributing factor in terms of what takes place with respect to corn supplies. And then, you know, I think we're, we're doing this podcast following the USDA's release of the WASD uh, numbers because that's normally a market mover. This month, I'm not convinced the WASD was really the market mover. I really think that what the market's focused most heavily on are what the for, uh, weather forecasts are. If you look at the uh, most recent six to 10 day temperature outlook and precipitation outlook from NOAA, um, it doesn't seem like it bodes well for corn production. Uh, if you look at the temperature outlook, above normal for certainly the Western Corn Belt and spilling over into maybe the western edge of the eastern corn belt or certainly the central corn belt. A good chunk of Illinois is in that above normal category. And then the precipitation side, the western corn belt definitely in the in the below average uh, category, uh, virtually the entire state of Iowa in there, uh, western Missouri. Um, and then as you move towards the eastern corn belt, the, the moisture uh, forecast seems to be a little bit better. So Nathan, when I look at that, I think you have to be a little bit concerned about where we might be headed. Not necessarily that we will be headed there, but you have to be cognizant of the fact that I think the market's going to watch these weather forecasts pretty pretty carefully. Yeah, I think over the next month or so, you know, we're going to be watching weather very closely and that's going to be impacting markets. And we'll talk about that a little bit here in a minute. You know, as you look at the corn, I think July, critical time frame. Uh, we're entering the July time frame in, a, in an environment, certainly here in much of the Eastern Corn Belt, where even uh, soybean conditions are lagging a little bit in terms of not so much from the condition perhaps, but maybe the growth stage seems like it's lagging a bit uh, related to the, to the dryness. And so that'll be important later, later on. So I, I guess in, in some, what I would kind of point out is that going forward, some timely precipitation is gonna be needed doesn't have to be huge. We've learned that in the past. You can get timely precipitation can have a big, big impact on yield. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But I think we're going to see, continue to see a lot of volatility uh, focused on these weather forecasts. Um, if you look at USDA's numbers, um, they gradually have been increasing the corn ending stocks estimates since the May uh, publication of the WASD. And I, I want to emphasize that because that's probably the opposite of what most of us were talking about and thinking about back in May. We were kind of thinking, given the Ukraine situation, Ukraine's lack of access to the export markets, um, certainly some an anticipation that Russia would have some difficulty exporting, uh, that that would lead to a tightening of ending stocks because the underlying thought process was that the U.S. would be a beneficiary in terms of picking up extra exports. That really hasn't materialized. And so if you look at the carryover estimate here in July from the 21 crop, USDA did bump it up. Uh, last month, they were at 1.485 uh, billion bushels. This month, they're at 1.510. Uh, so that's not a huge increase. It's about 25 million bushels. But I think the direction is probably the more important aspect of that as opposed to the number. And then as you look at the initial projections for the 
uh, carryover coming out of the 2022 crop into the 2023 crop year, um, those have gone up significantly since May. Back in May, we were at 1.36 billion bushels. Last month, it went up a little bit to 1.4 billion bushels. This month, it went up again to 1.47 billion bushels. So, you know, we're up 110 million bushels on the expected carryover coming out of the 2020 crop, excuse me, 2022 crop into the 2023 crop year. And again, I don't know that the actual numbers are really the, the significant factor there. I think it's the direction. I think the market was really looking for uh, earlier in the year an expectation that those numbers could tighten further. Certainly, that's one of the things we talked about on some of our previous broadcasts. Um, instead, we're looking at it going the opposite direction. And you know, with, with prospects for that continuing, uh, depending on what happens to the size of the U.S. crop here going forward. So if you look at U.S. corn ending stocks as a percentage of usage, coming out of the 21 crop, about a 10% carryover. That's up from 8.3% in the 2020 crop year. Um, and then the initial projections for the 22 crop carryover into the 23 crop year, holding at about 10%. And so again, uh, those are relatively tight numbers by historical standards, but they are larger than what we saw back, for example, in 2011, 2012, 2013. And I know a lot of people are maybe wondering about 2012 versus uh, the current environment. In 2012, we only had a carryover of about 7% going into the 2013 crop year. So we are not as tight, uh, at least based on current projections, as we were in, in several of those prior years. And I think it's a little bit of a surprise, given what's going on with uh, the Ukraine situation. We really thought that was going to tighten things up a little more than it has so far. Um, if you look at the major exporters ending stocks, really no change in USDA's estimates this month versus last month. So um, just for a little uh, refresher, the major exporters, of course, include the U.S., uh, South Africa, uh, Argentina, uh, Brazil, and then um, uh, Ukraine and Russia. And so if you look at it from the 20 crop year, uh, those major exporters were at about 3.6% carryover relative to world usage. 21 crop, about 4.6%. And current projections for the 22 crop, about 5.3%. And then the question mark continues to be, uh, how much of the Ukraine estimated inventories are really available. So one way to deal with that is to simply subtract Ukraine off of those uh, estimated stocks and look at it that way. And that leaves you with a 22 crop carryover of about 4.3%, up slightly from the 21 crop of about 4.1%. So those are tight carryover numbers. Again, if you compare those back to where we were on a worldwide basis in, in 2011, 2012, those carryover numbers were in the 3.7 to 3.8% range. Um, we're not quite to that level, but uh, we are relatively tight. So, uh, but I think, again, the key point was marketplace probably expecting further tightening relative to what we saw a month or two ago, and that simply hasn't happened. So um, we'll keep an eye on that. But, uh, you know, I, and I, as I look at it, I think there's a couple of things going on there. First of all, uh, Russia has been able to do a better job of exporting than probably a lot of us expected. We really thought they would lose access to some markets, and that's not really been the case so far. Secondly, I think Ukraine has managed to get some exports out, more so than, than probably a lot of us anticipated. Obviously, the major ports in the Black Sea, like Odessa, are still closed, 
but they have been able to move some grain. So that has, has been beneficial from their standpoint in terms of generating some revenue and also beneficial in terms of uh, making those supplies available to the world. But um, the idea that they wouldn't be able to export anything was clearly wrong. And uh, it remains to be seen where that's going. And of course, the other thing that's influencing the market is these day by day, week by week headlines talking about uh, the possibility of establishing some kind of an export corridor. And, uh, you know, who knows where that's going to go in terms of the politics. I guess uh, our listeners can probably judge that as well as we can, right? It's uh, you're really trying to get inside uh, Vladimir Putin's mind in terms of what he's thinking about. But uh, my own view is it's unlikely that they're going to establish an export corridor uh, and really get access, for example, out of Odessa. So I think we're going to still see restricted exports from, from Ukraine, but, but not zero. Um, looking at the margins for ethanol, they have really come down pretty sharply. Uh, as of last week, they're still positive. This is based on the Iowa State data where they simulate a kind of a standard uh, ethanol plant's operating margins. Uh, they were down to about 10 cents per gallon of ethanol. That's about as low as they've been since, oh, I think late February, early March. They got pretty tight for a while. Uh, we had some very positive margins last fall. We had some very positive margins earlier this spring for a short period of time. But those margins have really tightened up. And, you know, I don't think it's been bad enough that it's really caused any ethanol plants to shut down, Nathan. But it certainly doesn't bode well for very aggressive grinds, uh, certainly these last uh, couple of months of the marketing year, right? Yeah, and we'll see that reflected in some of the ethanol basis information that, you know, it certainly has slowed down a little bit. If you look at the production numbers and compare them to last year, you can kind of see what's going on as well. Uh, we were well above last year through the winter into the spring. And then since about the end of May, we've been kind of treading water. One week will be above the prior year. One week will be below the prior year. The last couple of weeks of data, uh, end of June, beginning of July, slightly below last year, I think 1% and 2% reductions. So if you look at cumulative ethanol production this year, looking at the weekly data, um, and look at it over the course of the 21 crop year, the 2021 crop year. So far, we're up about 7% compared to the 2021 crop year. Um, that might suggest that USDA's ethanol consumption number on their balance sheet is a little bit conservative, but probably not off by much. I mean, I think what USDA is expecting is that we could see some weakness in ethanol grinds here in July and August, maybe seeing those ethanol grinds probably drop back a little bit from last year. And at the end of the day, um, that would probably put them you know, pretty close to hitting their target in terms of uh, their forecast. Um, if you look at the marketing year average forecast coming out of USDA, no change in their forecast for the 2021 crop year. No big surprise there. We're so deep into the 21 crop year, it would be hard to really move that average. So it's still at 595. They did pull back the 22 crop estimate uh, by 10 cents a bushel. They were at 675. They are now at a 665. Uh, which by historical standards is still a very strong average. Uh, it is not a record high. The record high, of course, was back in 2012 when we hit 689. Uh, and that, of course, was an environment where production costs were lower than they are today. And you'll talk more about that here in a minute, Michael, but uh, a little different environment. 
So Nathan, you've been taking a look at the basis and the basis moves, especially since the first of June, have been pretty interesting. Yeah, it has. <clears throat> so I want to start off, talk just a little bit about, you know, uh, some regionalized kind of basis numbers coming out of the, the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's crop basis tool. So if you look at what's going on in central Indiana, uh, looking at the uh, current basis levels, since the beginning of June, corn basis in central Indiana is up about 45 cents. I mean, that's a pretty big increase in that amount of time. Uh, and so, you know, we've definitely seen uh, corn basis values strengthening here over the last five or six weeks. Uh, if we take a look at what's going on in uh, southwest Indiana, it's even kind of more pronounced. So since the beginning of June, corn basis in, in southwest Indiana up 55 cents. Uh, a bushel. So again, in general, you know, when we think about what's going on in futures markets, as futures have weakened, uh, basis has increased, right? So we've, we've seen cash prices try to keep up, but uh, these increases in basis ultimately are not enough to offset what we've seen in terms of declines in futures. And so we have seen cash prices pull back a little bit, but basis has been uh, working to keep those cash prices, uh, you know, at levels above maybe where they could be. So if we zone in a little bit and move away from, from the regional data that's in the crop basis tool, uh, I kind of track what's going on at some, some different locations around the Eastern Corn Belt. One of the things that I track is uh, nearby corn basis in um, uh, the river terminals along southern Indiana in Southern Illinois. And that's kind of a proxy for what's going on in export markets, essentially is what I'm trying to capture there. And if you look at what's gone on there in those river markets in terms of basis here recently, you have to be a little bit careful what you're looking at. Um, number one, we're at the time of year where we're looking at uh, September futures contracts for corn. Those aren't really widely traded, I guess, would be how I would describe it. So you gotta be a little bit careful when you're interpreting kind of what's going on in those contracts. They can be a little bit squirrely sometimes. You also have to keep in mind, especially when I look at these, I'm looking at them on a nearby basis, not a deferred basis. And so you've got changes from one contract month to the next. And so whatever kind of carry that you have in, in uh, those futures markets between one contract to the next can cause kind of some jumps in basis along the way. So you have to take that into consideration. So when you look at what's gone on uh, with corn basis at those um, River terminals here over the last couple of weeks, they've been pretty flat. When we roll to the July contract, the, from the last week of June to the first week of July, we see this big jump. Again, embedded in that is the spread between the July and the September corn futures contract. When you account for that spread, the fact that the July contract was trading for a higher price than that September contract, the, the deferred change week over week from the last week of June to the first week of July was still a pretty substantial increase, 25 cent uh, increase in basis from the last week of June to the first week of July. And, you know, again, while that increase in basis is, is favorable, it doesn't, you know, uh, offset the, the declines in futures prices that we've seen. And so cash prices have still dropped in those regions. Yeah. So if you look at it, Nathan, um, still picking up some strength in those export channels, right? That's right. So then looking at um, ethanol plant basis, so again, just taking all the ethanol plants um, in the state of Indiana and kind of averaging them together to kind of give us this index of ethanol plant basis in Indiana. Um, really, you know, going back to, um, you know, March, April timeframe, we've seen basis at those plants increasing. That's been a little bit surprising when you think about where corn prices have been during that timeframe, that uh, those ethanol plants were, were still 
bidding aggressively for corn. And again, when you go back to, you know, Jim, you talked about the mar margins have been really strong during that time frame as well. So it makes sense. In recent weeks, you know, you talked about how those margins have uh, started to uh, soften a little bit, come back down. Uh, you know, we've seen basis kind of do a similar thing. You know, when you look at it um, on, on a deferred basis, so the, the change in basis here recently hasn't quite been as big. So from the last week of uh, uh, June to the first week of July, when you account for the spread between that uh, July and September futures contract, the increase is only about seven cents a bushel. But still, we're sitting at, at you know, reasonably high uh, basis levels at those ethanol plants. And I think when you look at the margins that you showed, Jim, I would expect those to continue to maybe soften uh, as we go forward. Um, but, you know, time, time will tell. Yeah, it's going to be hard to sustain much of an improvement in basis with the kind of margin we're looking at, right? So we'd have to see a change in those margins. And, and I don't see that happening here the next uh, few weeks, but uh, we'll see how that shakes out. So then uh, one of the last things I want to talk about, again, I, I've alluded several times to kind of the changes that we've seen in futures markets, in, in particular the last week or two. And so a lot of times uh, on, on our podcasts and webinars, we talk about se the seasonal patterns in corn and soybean futures. And we've talked a lot about how, you know, during um, the, the beginning, you know, the, the beginning of the year, so January ahead of harvest, if we're looking towards those new crop uh, corn futures contracts, we tend to see uh, seasonal kind of uh, peaks in, in those futures contracts sometime between April, May, June for corn, uh, where, you know, we have uh, kind of weather premium built into the market. And so on average, those tend to be good times of year uh, for folks to do some pre-harvest marketing. And so what I wanted to do is kind of compare that with what's happened in futures markets this year in particular. And when you look at that, the the big rally in futures that we've seen from the beginning of the year uh, through the, the late spring and early summer months, you know, has just dwarfed those average kind of premiums that we see in, in, in these futures markets for this time of year. But what's interesting is we've seen, um, you know, futures kind of drop off pretty hard here the last couple of weeks. And that really lines up with the time of year that we typically see uh, these futures prices kind of lose those seasonal premiums and kind of revert towards um, uh, kind of seasonal lows during the harvest time frame. And so, you know, based on history, we'd expect this, you know, pattern to continue. Again, we, we've talked several times about weather here over the next uh, several weeks through the end of July probably being pretty important. That could have a pretty big influence on what happens to this kind of uh, pattern in, in corn futures prices going forward. Yeah, so it really illustrates, I think, the the need for risk management, which is what we've been talking about every time you show this chart, right? It We can't forecast with enough accuracy what's going to happen. So you have to try and take advantage of these seasonal patterns. And, you know, it was a challenge this year because we had some extraneous factors or external factors really influencing the market, and nobody knew what was going to shake loose there. But from a historical perspective, you knew that, you needed to take advantage of those prices, at least on a portion of your production. And so uh, hopefully listeners took that advice. Looking ahead here these next few weeks, what we're really looking at is a situation of volatility, right? Yeah. I mean, if we have really good weather, we could see some further declines. If we see dryness spread throughout the Corn Belt and maybe some excessive heat, uh, we could see this rebound pretty sharply. So. Uh, again, I think looking at history, though, if we do see the rebound, I think listeners probably need to be prepared to make some moves, don't they? 
Yeah, especially those who didn't take advantage of, you know, what we saw here over the last couple of months, you know, any sort of rebound would be an opportunity to kind of get back in. So you've taken a look at the price distribution tool, which again, it gets at this risk notion. Yeah. So again, getting at this idea of, you know, what's going to happen between now and, you know, approximately harvest this year, the University of Illinois FarmDoc uh, price discovery tool gives you a good way to kind of quantify that risk, I guess I would say. And so we've been looking at this for, you know, several months now. And I think it's interesting, you know, even after we've had a pretty sharp decline in corn futures here in the last couple of weeks, you know, the tool basically, every time you go to the website updates, you know, whatever current futures are, current volatility, it creates this distribution kind of continuously. So even after all that's happened, uh, as we look forward, you know, when we're recording this, corn futures for uh, December 22, um, futures contract are right around $6, give or take a few cents. Um, and according to the distribution tool, you know, we've got more than a 25% chance that that price is going to decline by another dollar between now and expiration of that December corn futures contract. So, you know, prices below $5 are a relatively a reasonable probability. Again, there, there's upside potential too. We've talked about, you know, if we have continued dryness, heat, and we have some weather issues and that you're going to end up uh, impacting yield, we, we could see prices go up as well. But as we kind of look at what's happened in the hard break that we've had in futures prices here recently, it's important to kind of think about this from a risk management perspective, right? There, there's still downside potential uh, in these markets. Uh, there is. There's um, some upside potential, right? And that's what you were alluding to just a minute ago. So looking at that same chart, uh, there's roughly a 25% chance that corn futures could go above 675. And, you know, we talked about this, I think, on some prior broadcast. You know, the spread here uh, on that, uh, well, that middle 50% is ranging between $5 and 675. We're not normally acclimated to seeing that large of a spread, right? I mean, this is this is indicative of the level of risk that's out there and the difficulty in terms of anticipating where we might head. Uh, over the next uh, several months. So looking at futures, this is the Dees uh, corn futures chart I'm taking a look at while we're, while we're talking here. Um, you know, Dees futures have really taken a hit, right? So if you look back in early May, we were, uh, I guess we topped out at about, what, 760, give or take a few cents. Uh, when I grabbed this chart just before we recorded here this afternoon, uh, it was sitting at about $6. So we've lost about a buck 60 over that time frame. Um, and just a lot of volatility. And I think these next three weeks, we can expect to see a lot of volatility as the market continues to react to um, weather conditions. Um, Michael, what's your take? You've been looking at the budget. You're going to talk about those in a minute. but uh. Yeah, I think volatility is a key word there. And it, 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 yeah, the, the weather market's going to have a huge impact. And, and one of the things that we didn't talk about when we were talking about weather is a lot of the crop was planted within a one-week to two-week window. And, and so and so that, that crop is going to be tossing here uh, in the next couple of weeks. It's going to be critical, uh, this weather in the next couple of weeks, uh, this corn crop. Yeah, and so it's it's been interesting to watch the futures market. I think we really are getting a lot of response to weather forecast, and so it's going to be very sensitive uh, both to, to moisture and temperature forecast here over the next couple of three weeks and, and see how things shake out. All right, let's take a quick look at soybeans. Soybean acreage on the report was uh, 2.7 million acres below the March planting intentions. Again, no big surprise with that number because that really came straight off of the June 30th um, acreage report. Uh, but it is a big change relative to what the planning intentions were, and that was probably the surprise of the last few weeks, uh, that that relatively small uh, planning number. 
And if you look at combined acreage, corn, soybeans, and wheat combined, um, maybe a bit of a surprise there. We were at 225.6 million acres of those three crops in the U.S. this year. That's down um, from 227.3 million uh, last year. So, you know, earlier in the year, I think the expectation was that we would see those three major crops at least equal and perhaps actually exceed last year's level. And Michael, you were taking a look at this on kind of a more of a state level basis. Yeah, I think this actually points to the problem that, that we had in planting corn and soybeans in, in North Dakota in particular, but North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Uh, and, and we need, when we look at the acreage report, we need to keep in mind that the that survey was done from May 28th to June 16th. And so in, 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 a, in a lot of cases, those were intended uh, acres to be planted, not actual planted acres. That's very important to point out, uh, the area left to be planted as of that survey date uh, was 4 million acres of corn, but 16 million acres of soybeans, which was double uh, that, 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 that the amount on the, on the acreage report uh, from the previous year. And, and so, and so this, this number on soybeans is not in concrete yet. Uh, it, it could be lower than that, depending on, depending on whether uh, they could get the soybean acres planted uh, in, in North Dakota in particular, but also in Minnesota. Uh, if you look at the drop and soybean acres uh, coming from the planning intentions to the acreage report, it really comes down to two main states. Uh, North Dakota uh, dropped their soybean acreage by 1.1 million. Uh, just reflects the, the difficulty they had pl- getting the crop in the ground. They also reduced their corn acres uh, from pl- the planning intention report in March. Minnesota was da- down a half a million. Uh, and so in parts of Minnesota, they also had trouble uh, getting that soybean c- crop planted. Yeah, so that means when we get the August crop production report, we're going to be looking at yield, and we're also going to be looking at acreage because USDA is going to resurvey in those areas where there was a significant amount of uh, acreage that had not been planted. Yeah, specifically North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Yeah, so we'll have a better grip on that, and it would not be, as you indicate, not a, not the least yeah, bit surprising they, they to see a change. Two, yeah, they, they could drop one to two million. That's not a guarantee by any stretch, but they could they could easily drop one to two million acres. And that's going to be important because as you look at the production estimate, USDA on this report came in at 4.51 billion bushels. That's down from their previous estimate of 4.64. But that really all came about because of acreage. There was no change in the yield estimate because they don't have an objective yield estimate number yet. So your point is we could see another drop in production unrelated to yield just coming out of a potential change in acreage, right? Yes. Which would tighten things further. Um, And as you look at uh, the carryover numbers, uh, USDA's estimate for the 22 crop, excuse me, the 21 crop number was 2.17. No big change there. But the... uh, Going forward, looking at the 22 crop estimate, carryover potentially into the 23 crop season, they did pull that back from uh, 2.2 to 2.14 billion bushels. So um, again, thinking about your point, Michael, it could tighten even more than that, right? Based on the the idea that maybe the acreage really isn't there. Um, If you look at the ending stocks forecast, uh, a little different story than what we were talking about on the corn side. And corn, the issue was, particularly going back to May uh, and looking at the 22 crop year, USDA has been increasing the expected carryover from 22 into the 23 crop year. Soybeans, the opposite story. Uh, Back in May, the forecast for the 22 crop carryover into the 23 crop season was 310 million bushels. In June, they dropped it slightly to 280 million bushels. 
This month it came down 50 million bushels, and that was really coming out of that, that smaller acreage and that smaller production number. And then going forward, it's going to be heavily dependent on what takes place with respect to weather, obviously, but also where that final acreage number turns out to be. So this, the soybean story is really different uh, than what we're looking at on the corn side. If you look at soybean ending stocks as a percentage of total usage, um, we're hovering in that roughly 5% range here on the U.S. crop. Uh, again, that's a tight number by historical standards. It's a little less tight than we were back in 20 when we were at 6%. And then, of course, I think a lot of us like to look back to where we were in that 2012-2013 time frame when soybean stocks got very tight. And we were well below 5%, uh, particularly in 2013. So it's a tight situation. It's not quite as tight, I think, as a lot of us thought it might be a month or two ago. Um, and, but the acreage thing is really going to hang on the, on the soybean market, I think, going forward. Um, if you look at the major uh, exporters, their soybean ending stocks, and just for a refresher, the major exporters obviously are the U.S., uh, Brazil, Argentina, and then Paraguay is a, a contributor, but a pretty small one. Um, that really accounts for virtually all of the exports uh, worldwide that take place in soybeans. That carryover uh, as a, as a uh, percentage of world usage in the 2021 crop year, 14%, in the 22 crop year, 17%. Both of those numbers are slightly higher than USDA's estimates a month ago. I think a month ago, the uh, major exporter carryover was projected at about 13% of usage, and the 22 crop carryover was projected at about 16%. So a small increase, but again, I think the direction is probably more important than, than the actual number. Um, and then if you look at the price estimates coming out of USDA, like corn, no change in the 21 crop estimate, but they did pull back the 22 crop estimate by 30 cents a bushel, Truthfully, I think largely just look at what's happened to futures uh, and, and pulling it back based on the fact that futures prices had fallen. But a little bit like we were talking about earlier, a lot of risk out there with respect to where soybean prices are headed. So Nathan, you've taken a look at the, at the basis on the soybean side as well. Yeah, so looking at the soybean basis, starting off with kind of just some regional averages from the, the crop basis tool. Uh, if you look at central Indiana, um, the soybean basis uh, up 37 cents since the beginning of June. So again, the last five or six weeks, we've seen uh, some strengthening there in soybean basis. If you take a look at southwest Indiana, um, uh, the... Uh, Soybean basis there has increased not quite as much, so 20 cents, up 20 cents since the uh, first week of June. Uh, again, so in general, we've seen some some strength there. Again, that is partially related to uh, the kind of decline in futures that we've seen, right? Basis having to kind of be bid up uh, to offset some of that decline in terms of uh, uh, keeping those cash prices up a little bit. Uh, but again, not enough to, to offset the, the decline in futures that we've seen. And, and really just trying to stimulate some movement, right? When, right. You see, when you see futures collapse like that, one of the things that merchandisers have to do sometimes is bump the basis just to pull uh, commodity out of the bins, right? Exactly. Uh, so then kind of uh, zoning in a little bit and looking at uh, a couple of the, the more specific things that I track in terms of basis going on. So here we got uh, nearby uh, soybean basis, again, along the river markets, so southern Indiana, uh, as well as Southern Illinois. And we had been seeing some strength in, in uh, soybean basis uh, 
uh, along those kind of more export markets uh, in May and June. That again started to decline. Um, June heading towards July. Again, as we're looking at what's going on here very recently, you got to be a little bit careful as this is a nearby basis. So you've got to take into account the, the roll from the July to the August uh, soybean futures in this case. And so when you take into account the spread between uh, July and August soybeans, the increase from the end of June uh, to the beginning of July was still uh, a 20 cent increase in, in soybean basis, which again, for a week over week change is, is very strong. But again, you got to couple that with what we've seen in terms of declines in soybean futures markets in that same time frame. And so again, we're really just trying to uh, stimulate some movement and have those cash prices somewhat be offset by the, the big decline in futures that we've seen. Next, looking at uh, soybean basis at processors uh, in the state of Indiana. Uh, again, this is a little bit different and maybe a little bit surprising. We've been talking a lot about the strength and processor basis uh, for soybeans for several months now. And that seems to maybe have waned a little bit. So again, looking at very recent changes in, in soybean basis, again, taking into account uh, the roll from the July to the August uh, soybean contract, when you when you take into account that spread between those two futures contract, the change in basis from the end of June to the beginning of July is actually a decline in soybean basis uh, at those processors. You know, when you look, so I think in in the uh, the way I have this built, again, similar to the ethanol plant basis, I'm just taking all the processors that I have access to and averaging their basis bids to give us this kind of sort of index of, of processor basis in the state of Indiana. I think I have like five or six uh, processors um, in that calculation, which is most, not all, but most of the processors, uh, soybean processors in the state of Indiana. Th those were quite volatile. So again, that decline in, in basis at those processors is kind of giving us an average of maybe what's going on. I think some of those were still pretty strong, but there were also some that had, had weakened a little bit. And so on average, we see that decline. So that would be something you really want to be paying attention to at kind of your particular location if, if soybean processors are a place where you sell uh, some of your soybeans. But ultimately, you know, looking at that uh, decline on average is indicating that, you know, cash prices have actually weakened at those locations weakened at those locations even more than what we've seen in the decline in uh, futures prices. So I think thinking about the, the basis uh, at the river versus the processors, you know, one of the things that's going to be interesting here, these uh, the rest of July and, and then in uh, the month of August and, and spilling over maybe in September is, you know, we're at that time of year when Brazil's basically tapped out. And so we've become the residual supplier on a worldwide basis for soybeans. And so to the extent that there's any strength in the export demand, it's going to show up at those river markets, right? right? Right. That's exactly right. And again, that you know, we've been talking about this kind of tug of war between those soybean processors and those export markets uh, for the last several months. And I think that we're maybe getting into a point in the year where those exporters are going to start to, to bid a little bit more and maybe we'll see processors back off a little bit. Uh, so then next we're looking here at um, uh, kind of, again, this, this seasonal pattern in soybean futures. We, we kind of talk about that frequently, especially this time of year uh, when, you know, we're, we're talking to folks about thinking about new crop marketing opportunities. And so I wanted to kind of compare a little bit, you know, that seasonal pattern that we show quite, quite often, which basically shows, you know, uh, we see strength in soybean futures markets in the June to July timeframe. A lot of times we'll talk about, you know, Father's Day as being kind of a, a target date for folks to maybe be, be 
having priced some new crop soybeans. And when we look at what's happened to those, uh, the, kind of the, the pattern in futures prices, soybean futures prices this year in particular, you know, much stronger than average in terms of, of the, the rally in futures we see from the beginning of the year, January 1 through, um, you know, the May, June timeframe. But again, we've seen those uh, soybean futures break pretty hard here in the last week or two. And now they're back down in line with kind of that typical uh, seasonal level in terms of uh, uh, relative to the beginning of the year. And so again, the question is, you know, where does that go from there? We don't have as much, quite as much downside in terms of, um, you know, the seasonal pattern for soybeans between here and harvest, uh, you know, typically prices do decline a little bit. Uh, but again, it, it's going to depend on probably what happens with weather, weather quite a bit in terms of will we kind of follow that seasonal pattern towards those uh, seasonal lows uh, around harvest time? Or if we do have some weather issues, you know, could we see futures prices bounce back uh, and give folks some opportunities to get, you know, above seasonal norms in terms of soybean prices here, um, say in July and August? You know, Nathan, thinking about both this chart and, and as well as the one that you put together for corn, you know, the exceptional thing is the strength we saw in the marketplace relative to January 1. Yeah. I mean, if you went back over the last uh, 30 years and looked at it year by year, had we ever had a year, uh, maybe, I'm thinking maybe 2012, uh, any years other than 2012 when we saw anything like this kind of percentage increase? Because, you know, looking at the chart, you were starting off in January 1, your chart tops out here on soybeans at, at 120, meaning that you were at 120% of what it was um, back on January 1. I think the corn chart was about 130 or 135. Somewhere in there, yeah. Um, you, you've looked at this in more detail. So yeah. how often does this happen? It's not very often. Yeah. So I didn't look at the, the individual years to know for sure if this was the highest that it's ever been or not. But I can tell you those are outliers, right? 2012 would probably be a good place to look to compare to. And I don't know off the top of my head, you know, what was the rally between the beginning of January to that kind of late spring, early summer time frame. But yeah, these would certainly be outliers when you look at those individual years. Um, and I could go back and look and tell you for sure uh, on a future webinar exactly where they rank, but they would certainly be up there in terms of the big, some of the big increases between that time frame that we've seen. Yeah, I think for our listeners, if you have a chance to download the chart, these are a couple of interesting charts to look at because you have to kind of think about what that means, that movement that we saw in prices from January 1 uh, for both corn and soybeans relative to that historical norm. Because your historical norm is is pretty small increase, right? Uh, three, yeah. three, 4%. And, uh, you know, so this year was exceptional. Exceptional. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and sometimes, you know, when you when you look at these charts, the, the averages in particular, you know, that two to three percent, it's not huge, but it is a seasonal pattern that we pick up on. But this year kind of shows you, right, there are years where it's above that and there are years where it's below that. This year happens to be a, a pretty exceptional year in terms of maybe pulling that average up. But um, certainly, you know, it's something to pay attention to. 
So then the last thing here uh, on, the, on the marketing side of things is just looking at, again, at that FarmDoc price discovery tool. So again, trying to get a, an idea of quantifying the, the risk or the distribution of potential uh, soybean prices for that November 22 soybean futures contract between now and expiration. Again, this, is, this chart has changed a lot even since the last month because of the pretty sharp decline in futures that we've seen. But even with that decline, right, it's still important to realize there is both upside and downside uh, uh, risk here, right? So uh, looking at, you know, I think we're currently, uh, as, as we're recording this, at soybean futures prices for November 22 of somewhere around 1350. So according to the distribution tool, you know, it's saying there's about a 25% chance that we could see uh, those prices decline by $1.50. So be below $12 by expiration uh, of that November 22, November 22 soybean futures contract. But again, Upside potential as well, 25% chance we could go back up above 1450. So, you know, we're talking, you know, dollar, dollar 50 swings, which is just huge volatility, which is really just seems to be the norm these days. Uh, but, you know, you really need to be paying attention here in terms of uh, upside and downside potential. And again, as you think about what's what's taking place here, these spread, as you mentioned, wider than normal, right? You wouldn't expect to see anything quite this wide, at, even at this time of year, which is historically a volatile time of year. And then the second thing is, it, it, you do need to pay attention here this summer. If there's an opportunity to, to make some uh, pricing moves, uh, you'll have to pay attention because they're, they're, we're going to see reactions to weather and maybe more importantly, weather forecast. So if you look at the November soybean chart, November soybean, November soybean futures chart, again, we pulled that off here uh, this afternoon, just before the, a few minutes before the market closed. Um, November soybeans were hovering in that 1350 to 1355 range. Earlier, back in early June, we were that November contract was up around 1550 or a little higher than that, I think, actually. So we've lost a uh, couple of dollars. Um, and even in the last few days, we've bounced between that roughly 1350 and actually a little bit below that, and uh, like what 1425 or so. So tremendous volatility, and I think going forward over the next six or seven weeks, that's going to be the name of the game. Yeah, that's not going to stop anytime soon. I mean, we've got we've got acreage questions, we've got yield questions. So let's let's kind of move on and, and think about some of your projections, Michael. So just for our listeners to kind of remember. Uh, Michael, you you track a, a sample or case farm here in, in West Central Indiana, uh, and you've gone that all the way back to 2007, and you simulated returns to a typical corn-soybean rotation. And boy, have the numbers changed as we've moved through the course of the growing season. They sure have. Let me talk a little bit about how, what, what I've actually, how I'm actually coming up with these profitability estimates. First of all, it's net farm income. Uh, and net farm income is taking off an income statement. And essentially, the income, income needed uh, for operator labor slash family living. So that, that's, that needs to be taken out of net farm income. Also, repaying term debt. Uh, so making payments on land, machinery, and buildings. That would be coming out of uh, of net farm income, uh, and 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 then also uh, uh, down payments on new asset purchases. And so there's a lot of needs for that net farm income. And so this is it's generally positive because it has to cover those things. And so for this case farm, uh, you're looking at an average net farm income since 2007 of about 140 to 150 dollars. That pretty much uh, covers it. Uh, so now let's talk about 21 and 22. Uh, with that caveat, 21 obviously was a very good year. Uh, 
uh, net farm income per acre was $350. Uh, if, you, if you think about this is an average of corn and soybeans, uh, that's getting the job done. So that was that was the highest uh, we had seen probably since the early 70s, maybe 73, 74. Uh, 22 looked like it was going to be just as good, if not slightly better than 21. But a, a $2 a drop in soybeans and a $1.50 drop in corn. Uh, and, and, what, and, and what do we come up with? Uh, we come up with about a $200 per acre drop in net farm income uh, from our May webinar uh, to today's webinar. And so we're still sitting above that long run average in terms of net farm income, uh, but but we are uh, quite a bit lower than what it, what it was, uh, you know, looking back to, to May and June. So, let, Michael, let's back up for just a second, because to come up with these income estimates, you have to embed a marketing strategy. And you've embedded one that's consistent going all the way back to 2007. Yes. So explain that strategy to yeah, us. It's very, yeah, it's a very simple strategy. Uh, it just assumes that we're going to sell 50% uh, of our crop uh, uh, October, November, December, and 50% of our crop January, February, March. And so there's no risk management in play yeah. here, no hedging or anything. You're simply taking cash prices and splitting it across those two time frames, right? Yeah, yeah we've, got a, we've got a student that we're working, well, all three of us are working on, that's actually comparing the strategy used on this case farm with some more sophisticated marketing strategies. And she's she's currently working on her thesis to see how this strategy compares uh, to some of those strategies, a little bit more active marketing strategy. Uh, and so it, it's consistent, but, uh, but, but, uh, but, but uh, moving on to 22, these numbers, of course, aren't final yet. We've got we've got the yields right now. I've got trend yields in here. We may not get trend yields, and so that number is going to bounce around a little bit depending on price, but also also yields. And when you do the projections for 22, you're using the futures prices adjusted for yes. basis for both the fall and the winter time frame, yes. correct? And that's why that 22 projection keeps bouncing around, right? Around. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, there's a, we're going to have a slide in the slide deck that will be posted that looks at the surge in farm input prices. We, we update this every month. Uh, we, we've updated it from May 21 to May 22. Uh, when we get the June date, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll update that again. Uh, during that time period, the PCE uh, implicit price deflator increased 6%. There was some recent uh, recent release of the CPI. The CPI in June was 9.1%. Uh, the implicit price deflator is typically a little lower than the CPI. But the only reason I mention uh, general inflation is, is this slide compares general inflation uh, to increases in inputs in agriculture. If you look at all production items using USDA uh, National Agriculture Statistical Service data, all production items in agriculture have increased 17% or almost triple uh, the, the, the general inflation rate. Almost all the inputs are up, but the largest increases, of course, are, are fertilizer, uh, diesel, and, and, and uh, anything related to energy uh, essentially uh, is, is up substantially and and, and so uh, and so we, this is putting a tremendous pressure uh, on the break-even prices we've talked about this before uh, the break-even price for corn even using trend yields is close to 30 percent higher in 22 uh, compared to 21 the real worries uh, from a producer standpoint if, you know, from when you talk to producers is not necessarily 22 yes we've got a, a squeeze in margins compared to what we had a month or two ago but what about 23? If these input costs remain high or even uh, uh, get a little higher, uh, we're going to start to have production costs that are quite a bit above uh, where the where the, the current uh, deferred uh, futures contract prices are. 
And Michael, when I'm, I'm looking at the chart that you put together, and again, this is a good chart to, to look at if you have a chance to download the slide deck that we're using here. The only input that had an inf uh, increase uh, percentage terms smaller than the PCE deflator, which is the Fed's uh, preferred inflation measure, is seed. Every other input on the chart, and I'm counting here, let's see, there's three, six, nine. You've got 12 inputs listed there. The only one that was less than the PCE deflator was seed. Everything else rose by more than that broader yeah, measure of inflation. Of them, yeah, and most of them, most of them besides seed and, and is double, triple. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about break-even prices. We'll we'll talk about high high productivity uh, uh, soil here. Uh, the 22 break-even price is is, is about 510. Uh, compare that to to where the futures price are, and we still have some opportunity for economic profit on high productivity ground uh, for corn, uh, assuming that we again that we have trend yields. You look at average productivity; we're getting very close to where the prices, the current prices adjusted for basis, are at. Uh, break-even price about 560, uh, and, and so we're getting closer to break even on the average productivity ground. Yeah. So as you look at that, Michael, uh, the a couple of things kind of jump out at me. One is the just to cover variable cost, how much that has gone up over the last year. It's truly amazing. You look at average productivity, for example, we got a 363 break even price to cover variable costs. Uh, you know, when you take when you when you increase fertilizer cost uh, two to two and a half times what they were the previous year, you're going to see a huge increase in that break even price just to cover variable costs. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, uh, Jim and Nathan, we were talking about sub four price for corn. Right. So I think I think that gets at this issue of what's really concerning producers when they see their variable cost production to that high uh, and recognize the volatility that exists in commodity prices. It, it creates a lot of concern, right? I, I need to I need to say that I'm, I'm bullish on production agriculture, so I don't want to be a I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here. But if you use that price distribution tool and you look out December 23 corn, that that uh, lower 25 uh, percent starts with a four. Uh, <laughs> that price starts with a four, and so they, and so I, I see where the producers are coming from. There is tremendous concerns about 23 right now. Yeah, this this rise in cost of production has really got. I think the entire industry on edge. We're seeing a similar thing for soybeans, but because we don't have, you don't use anhydrous on soybeans, uh, they, they, it's not near near to the extent uh, of, of the increase in soybeans. We're looking at a break-even price for soybeans of 11.60 on high productivity ground uh, and and 12.53 on average productivity ground. So even on the average productivity ground, uh, if if we get trend yields, we're still looking at economic profit. Uh, and you look at the difference in earnings per acre. I was talking before the webinar uh, to you guys about this. Uh, back in May, we were expecting corn to be $150 per acre more profitable than soybeans. That's completely switched. And now we're assuming that soybeans are going to be, uh, you know, using the case form, soybeans look like they're going to be more profitable than corn. Not tremendously more profitable, but nevertheless, uh, more profitable than corn. And of course, that's going to continue to bounce around depending on what takes place here over yeah, the course of the summer. Yeah, you 23. It's, it's early yet, but I, I, I'm tempted. I, I'm tempted to go ahead and say something about 23. It's about a wash right now, as you expect. 
We did ask a question, Jim, on the Ag Economy Barometer uh, in June. Uh, these survey results were released on July 5th, 2022. More information on our website. Uh, but we asked, compared to a year ago, and this is for all U.S. producers, compared to a year ago, what are your expectations for cash rent in your area uh, in 2023? 52% uh, said that their cash rent would be higher. Only 3% said cash rent was going to be lower. Yeah, and we're going to get more information on this when Purdue's land value survey comes out. We'll have the, uh, that'll be featured on one of our webinars in, in uh, August. So we'll have a little more definitive information. But obviously, there's a lot of pressure to push these cash rents higher, right? That's, this is a little scary, and, and I think it's coming from the 21 strong cash flow, and so that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to continue to cover uh, this net farm income projections, uh, even though I kind of sound like a broken record. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's very important because that's really feeding into uh, next year's cash rent, and we saw this big drop uh, in potential earnings for 22. That's very important when 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 we're negotiating the 23 uh, 23 cash rent. Profits aren't going to be near as good in 22 as we thought they were going to be, that's going to put less upward pressure on cash rents. And, and as you indicated, we're going to ask this uh, the same question on the July Ag Economy Barometer. I'm going to be curious to see if we get different results because when we when we surveyed people in June, we were we were right before uh, the drop off in, in corn and soybean futures prices. And so uh, we'll see if they change their tune uh, with these lower corn and soybean futures prices. I have to point out that you know, you've looked at this in, in a lot of detail, particularly with one of your students a few years ago. Cash rental rates tend to lag returns, right? So even though current year projections are softening as we speak, uh, the driver is probably going to continue to be what took place in 21, right? Yeah, all I'm saying is, is, is rather than perhaps a double-digit increase in 23, we're probably looking at something zero to five percent. That's that's what I mean by you. Know, there's less pressure there. It's not going to go the other direction. I don't think there's enough. There's not enough cash flow drop in 22 uh, to to even stabilize the cash rents. I think there's still upward pressure on those 23 cash rents. Yeah, and we'll have more information on that in, in August when we have the uh, results from the Purdue Land Value Survey with uh, Dr. Todd Keithy. So that wraps up our discussion today. A reminder that you can download a set of the charts that accompany this podcast on our website at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And the podcast will be featured on the center's home page, or you can click on podcast on the menu bar to gain access to that. So I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of Nathan Thompson, Michael Langemeyer, and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening. <music>